This is the Talent Talks podcast. I'm Alan Caesar. We have a special episode for you this month. It's the recording of a speaker series event with alumnus Steve Altimus. He got his bachelor's in aeronautical engineering from Embry-Riddle in 1987. His company, Intuitive Machines, scored the $77 million contract to build the next lunar lander for NASA. He came to campus and talked in pretty deep detail about the challenges involved in landing on the moon, and we had some excellent questions from the audience. I think you'll dig it. James Roddy, Embry-Riddle's Director of Internal Communications, conducted the interview. I'll let him take it from here. So the Office of Alumni Engagement continually seeks opportunities to help our alumni network, educate, engage, and inspire. Tonight is one of those opportunities. The Alumni Speaker Series welcomes industry leaders, prominent alumni, and important trailblazers in aviation, aerospace, and related fields. And they come here to provide their insight on the industry and exciting new opportunities. We welcome our Embry-Riddle community of current students, alumni, friends of the university, staff and faculty, as well as those who are located across the globe watching this online. Thank you for being here. We also want to thank our supporters who not only assist in the scholarships and the unique opportunities like this, but also help make all of these events possible. Thank you. And tonight is special because we have a very unique announcement to, to announce right now. Embry-Riddle, thank you Steve, has been offered the opportunity to partner with Intuitive Machines in order to take an Embry-Riddle project that would be called Eagle Cam and created by a team of faculty or students and take it to land on the moon. However, in order to take advantage of this special opportunity, the university must attract private philanthropic support for 100% of the Eagle Cam project. And we must do this by a hard deadline of January 2020. If we fall short, unfortunately, we'll be able, we'll have to forego this potential collaboration. However, we have some supporters on the project in our audience, and we would like to thank them currently for their visionary and generous contributions to help put this fund forward and support the College of Engineering Fund for Excellence. This enables investments in special student engagement learning projects. So whether to help support this project or take one to the moon, future opportunities like it, we invite your contributions to the College of Engineering Fund for Excellence. Please know that tonight you can also speak to one of the members of the Office of Philanthropy, who is here tonight, our Senior Vice President of Alumni Engagement and Philanthropy, Mr. Mark Archibald. Mark. More information can be found on this pamphlet that you have on the back. Now let's talk about tonight as well. The format for the next hour plus will be led by moderator Mr. James Roddy. He is currently the Director of Internal Communications for the University. For the past six years, James has been responsible for public media relations at the Daytona Beach campus of Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University. 
and he is now focused on the internal communication. James considers himself a storyteller, and he says he feels very fortunate to tell the stories of alumni, students, faculty, and staff, and all the amazing things that they or we accomplish, leading this incredible aeronautical university as we are the leaders in the world of aerospace and aviation. Thank you again for joining us. We have a wonderful program for you this evening. And at this point, I'd like to say, James, your controls. Mr. James Roddy. Hi, everybody. Hi, everybody online. Wave back. I can't see you waving, but I'm sure they're there. Uh, you guys are in for a treat tonight. We're going to be speaking with Embry-Riddle alumnus Steve Altimus, president and CEO of Intuitive Machines, a company that is positioned to be the first private business to land on the moon as part of a $77.2 million payload delivery contract with NASA. Intuitive Machines has some other amazing services, as you've seen, and upcoming projects that we'll also talk about tonight. Steve received his BS in aeronautical engineering from Embry-Riddle in 1987 at this campus, correct? That's correct. And his MS degree in engineering management from the University of Central Florida. He joined NASA's Kennedy Space Center and the Space Shuttle Program in 1989, where he held progressively more responsible positions working in space shuttle operations, launch, and landing activities. He served as the Columbia Reconstruction Director after the loss of the Space Shuttle Columbia in 2003. In January 2005, he joined Johnson Space Center, which is charged with overseeing human spaceflight plans and programs for NASA. He served seven years as Director of Engineering and was then named Deputy Director of Johnson Space Center in 2013. Less than a year later, he left to found Intuitive Machines. Ultimus is a recipient of the NASA Outstanding Leadership Medal, the NASA Federal Engineer of the Year Award, the Presidential Executive Rank Award, and Embry-Riddle's 2018 Distinguished Alumni Award. He is also a member of the Engineering Advisory Committee here in Daytona Beach. Please welcome Steve Ultimus. Thank you, Jim. Yes. <clears throat> Good evening. Thank you, everybody, for being here once again. Um, this is going to be a lot of fun. So, Steve, what led you to a career in engineering? Wow, that's, that's a loaded question. I think... Um, for the next hour or so. <laughs> <laughs> um, one of the stories that comes to mind um, when you ask me that question is in uh, early 1986, I was walking, um, I, you know, I was already accepted into Embry-Riddle, I believe I was a junior, and I was walking from the engineering complex over to the student union. By the way, none of these buildings that I'm talking about exist today. Every single building when I went here in 1987 is bulldozed, and you got brand new buildings here, which is amazing. But um, I was walking from the engineering complex over to the student union, and there was a space shuttle launch on that day, and I saw this distorted and twisted contrail of the space shuttle. 
And in my gut, I knew something was horribly wrong. And I went over to the student union, and the TV was running, and the news cycle was running. And this was the Challenger disaster. And I knew immediately that we had lost the, the orbiter and the crew. It just was instinctive. And the news media was talking about, you know, maybe we'll hear from the crew, maybe we'll hear from the crew, and we knew they were gone. Um, that moment has stuck with me to this day. And little did I know that that um, awful um, incident would create an opportunity for uh, NASA to bring in a brand new class of engineer at the entry level and staff up again for return to flight. And so I was able to join NASA in 1989 as a direct result of them staffing in response to returning to flight. And my aerospace career with NASA began, um, I think, at that instant, walking across the campus. Wow. Wow. And you returned to, uh, uh, you, you started with the Kennedy Space Center just as the space shuttle program was basically ramping back up from the Challenger disaster, having been uh, basically closed down for 32 months. Yes, that's correct. That's correct. And what were your responsibilities? So <clears throat> there was a great mentor of mine, John Copeland, um, who was, uh, had the foresight to hire a group of um, hard-charging, uh, young, energetic engineers to uh, basically provide the insight into orbiter processing at the orbiter processing facility, the vehicle assembly building, the launch pad, to track the hardware and all the operations that were going on around the hardware um, as it was prepared from the orbiter processing facility all the way out to the launch pad. And so on the interview, I remember going down to NASA, I paid my own way my own airline ticket, rented my own car, and drove there to, to do the interview. And the interview was in the aft end of the orbiter. And if you've ever seen the aft end of the orbiter, it is full of plumbing, engines, uh, auxiliary power units, uh, cable trays, uh, avionics cabinets. That's got to be the coolest place to have an interview. Ever. It was great. And they took <laughs> us down, took me down in there, and I got to climb around it. And I said, this is the job I want. And I got to gain the insight of uh, what uh, the orbiter was all about, what the, what the stacking of the solid rocket boosters were and, and what the uh, launch from the launch pad looked like. And so um, it, was a, it was a great opportunity to learn hands-on, to meet the technicians, the workforce, the engineering workforce, and learn the operation. And other mentors throughout um, your career there. Oh, geez. I th there's been so many mentors. Um, above and below any position I had. You learn from everybody, um, whether it was the shop floor manager who was teaching a young wet-behind-the-ear engineer that was over-enthusiastic what to do. Um, but one of the names that sticks out um, for me is John Young, which was a flyer, an astronaut. If you recall him, he's a famous guy who flew on Gemini, Apollo, and was the first commander of, uh, of the space shuttle, STS-1. He actually was a mentor of mine when I became the engineering director at Johnson Space Center. Um, incredibly um, succinct and forthright individual who just knew, knew engineering inside and out. And he took me under his wing, thank goodness, and, and taught me how to be an engineering director. So we'd sit at these uh, meetings, uh, whether it was a mission management team meeting where we're trying to decide you know, the fate of 
what this problem on the orbiter was doing and how it was affecting the space station or uh, whether it was sitting in a brand new program stand up on the new lunar program called Constellation, he would sit next to me and he'd elbow me and he'd say, hey kid, are you gonna say anything? You're the engineering director, you need to say something. You know, and so, um, you know, I'm sitting there and said, finally I'd say, well, this is what I think from engineering. And he would just kind of continually goat me into uh, saying something. One of the things on Orion, you know, we're having the uh, exploration requirements team where we're deciding what the Orion spacecraft was going to look like before the contracts were let. And, you know, Orion is the next spacecraft that's going to uh, circumnavigate the moon. Um, and he said, hey, Steve, you know, this spacecraft's too big. You know, volume, it weighs a lot. I thought about what the heck is he talking about? Well, volume does weigh a lot. You have more structure, you have more seats, mm -hmm. you have more room for equipment, and it always grows. <laughs> and so he's insistent. He's used to sitting in a Gemini capsule, and we're looking at this luxurious <laughs> Orion capsule, right? So he made me speak up and say something. So John was a great mentor of mine. I was fortunate to have him. On February 1st, 2003, the Space Shuttle Columbia on its 28th mission broke up as it returned to Earth. NASA suspended space flights for more than two years at its at its, at when it investigated the disaster. You were intimately involved in this process as the Columbia Reconstruction Director. The search for debris took weeks, spread over a zone about 2,000 square miles in East Texas. NASA eventually recovered 84,000 pieces of the shuttle, representing about 40% of Columbia. And among that were crew remains which were identified with DNA. You've talked about this as one of the defining moments of your life. Yes. Yeah, I'll tell you, um, true character comes out in times and periods of disaster and crisis. <clears throat> and I would say that the, both the Challenger accident and the Columbia accident were defining moments for NASA. If you can put aside the tragedy of it all, it brought out the finest, the best in people who actually um, contributed to this seeking out and understanding the cause of the accident and to actually turn that into a passion for returning the space shuttle for flight. And so um, humbly accepted the uh, uh, request to serve as the Columbia Reconstruction Director at Kennedy Space Center. And that just kind of happenstance? Yeah, what happened there was I happened, I don't know, right, wrong place at the wrong time or right place at the right time. Walked in at the time when the management was, was looking for someone to um, pull this whole reconstruction effort together. I'd walked in and they were struggling over it and I said, I'll do it. I was launching space shuttles at the time. I was a shuttle test director in charge of uh, launching missions, and they had said, Steve, we're going to hold you in reserve to launch the return to flight mission. And I told them, we're not launching anytime soon. There's no need to be in reserve. I need the help. I need to pick up the pieces. I need the help. I'll do the job. So we went out on the end of the runway. That was the service for the crew members. We did a uh, missing man formation flying over the SLF, the shuttle landing facility, and I immediately went from there to the hangar on the SLF where we began laying out the grid for putting all the pieces back. We worked hand-in-hand -hand with the NTSB, and we began taking truckloads of debris 
in from East Texas and laying them out on the grid and trying to sort through the forensics of what the debris was trying to tell us. And ultimately, uh, from that hangar, from those 400 people who worked day and night to, to, to sort through that debris and all the different things that come with sorting through that debris, we found the source uh, and the contributor for um, the source of the accident. Which is pretty amazing. Um, and then changes were made. From there, um, significant changes were made to the shuttle program. And from there came, you know, it was, it was interesting because there would be plane loads of engineers coming from Johnson Space Center, which was the design development center for, for, um, for NASA and the space shuttle. And they would come into the hangar and they would look at the debris and they'd get an idea and they'd go away. Then next week they'd come back and they'd look at the debris. And they had all these theories about what caused the accident. And what the NTSB told us and Boeing Air Safety told us was as the debris collectors, as the reconstruction people, you have to avoid coming to a conclusion until you see and let the debris speak for yourself. So you have to refrain from putting a theory out there and saying, I think it was this that brought down the Columbia or that. And the engineering folks in Houston were constantly coming up with theories and saying, I think the carrier panel six on the left wing fell off. And they'd come in and I'd stand there talking to the engineering director at Johnson Space Center and, I, and he's telling me his theory. And I said, Frank, Frank Brenz, great mentor of mine. I says, look down at your feet. And there would be laying carrier panel six. So it couldn't have come off, right? <laughs> Next time he comes, he says, I think the crew module came apart because the water tanks underneath the floor flashed over and, and ripped apart and then blew the crew module apart. And so I went and collected all the water tanks and the next week he walks in, he comes in the hangar, there's pallets full of water tanks with our pristine condition. He looks, he scratches his head, doesn't say a word, turns and gets on the plane and flies home. <laughs> <laughs> so what we, out of that, there was a lot of exposure, there was a lot of people who saw uh, what we were doing there and how the team carried themselves. And they asked me if I would consider uh, coming to Johnson Space Center to lead engineering at the Johnson Space Center. And that's how I moved from Kennedy uh, to the Johnson Space Center to be the head of engineering at Johnson. And you were there for seven years, six years? Yeah, I was the engineering director for about seven years and then the uh, deputy director um, for about a year before I formed Intuitive Machines. And in that time, uh, what changes were made to the shuttle uh, as a direct result of the Columbia disaster? Well, there was um, a motto. Um, um, Sean O'Keefe was the administrator, and, and he had a, the, the ACE uh, strategy, which was accept, comply, and embrace all the findings of the Columbia Accident Investigation Board. And so no matter what the Columbia Accident Investigation Board said was at, uh, at the root of the problem, whether it was technical changes, whether it was management changes, we accepted those and adopted those uh, to come into, uh, uh, into the shuttle program. And one of the things that was uh, most important was people were speaking up about this foam strike on the left wing and that it could have caused damage. And people were saying the external tank should not be shedding foam. And yet, those voices were not heard. And so one of the major findings was dissenting opinions and hearing all the opinions 
um, and, and informed opinions and considering them in your technical solution and your uh, schedule and operation solutions as you went forward. And so there we learned um, this idea of how to embrace dissenting opinions and how to seek out opinions from um, anyone in the room that might have something important to offer um, us in our deliberations of resolving problems with the space shuttle. Um, so that um, ability to um, embrace dissenting opinions and treat those as additive to the conversation so you get a better solution was something that um, I've adopted in our current company as one of the key values in how we appreciate people um, in, in our organization. Uh, just after you were named Deputy Director at Johnson Space Center, you left to form Intuitive Machines. Hmm. How was that decision process made? Um, you know, Maj was really upset. I remember Maj Miriami upset because he had just signed me as a Deputy Director at Johnson Space Center to the Industry Advisory Board to the <laughs> College of Engineering. And I came to the meeting and said, Maj, I quit NASA. I retired. He's like, what? I just got you on the board. I said, I'm going to do a startup. He's like, I'm not looking for startups on the board. Uh, it's funny. Uh, but six years later, we're still great friends and still on the Industrial Advisory Board. Um, but I'll tell you, there was a time in the agency, which is not like today, which we'll talk about in a little bit, um, where you know the last uh, three years of my career at uh, NASA, I was uh, doing human spaceflight architectures for the agency, for the administrator and, and the associate administrator for human spaceflight. And so I crafted three human spaceflight architectures. One was the HEFT team, or Human Exploration Framework team, that preserved the Orion and the SLS as pieces of the Constellation program and, and kept those moving. Um, the other one was what we called the Waypoint team, which was to put an orbiting station spacecraft 60,000 kilometers beyond the moon on the backside of the moon at L2 wow. Lagrange point. That is our current day gateway program, but we invented that back in uh, 2011, I believe. And the last one, because there was an insistence that we will not fly the gateway or the waypoint, we came up with something that could be accomplished in a single presidential administration and that was the crazy idea to go capture an asteroid and bring it back to cislunar space. And it was termed the Asteroid Redirect Mission. So I tried all three of those. Those are with all the political constraints that we had, um, with the budgetary constraints we, we had, those were the only solutions, they were the optimum solutions for those times. And yet, the agency didn't bite on any of those. And so, I felt that I could do better taking my expertise gleaned over 25 years with NASA um, and methodologies for practicing engineering and apply them to some Earth's problems in aerospace, energy, and medicine and solve some intractable problems around the world. You know, and I began the company in Houston and started right there outside the gate. Um, it was scary at the time and it felt like going from a big, safe bureaucracy with a NASA meatball on your shoulder, and you, have, you can get into any room in, or see anybody in the world, practically, um, as a deputy director of Johnson Space Center with a NASA meatball. 
<laughs> and then suddenly, when you pack up your desk and you move outside and you start a little small company, and that NASA meatball is not there anymore, you have a whole lot of uh, um, earning to do again. You earn your credibility, earn your stripes, and, and climb back up the ladder. And so that was a big uh, challenge, stepping off. And so stepping off into that abyss it is what it felt like. I had this picture when I, when I left in my retirement that of this like base jumper jumping off a cliff with their feet in the sky, and it felt exactly like that. Um, but you land, and you pick up the pieces, and you keep going, and you keep trying, and you keep striving. And here we are six years later with a contract with NASA to, to return the United States to the moon. It's incredible. It is. So tell us about making the Nova Sea moon lander. So NASA... Um, gave us a contract um, which was the right to bid on NASA science missions to take NASA payloads to the moon. So they gave nine companies that, those contracts. It's uh, called a multi-award contract. And then you have to bid on every mission. And of the nine, three companies were selected to fly the first mission for NASA, of which only two survived now. One is Intuitive Machines and the other is Astrobotic out of Pittsburgh. Um, so NASA's interest is to have a commercial company design, build, test, fly on your own launch vehicle whatever, or whatever you can purchase, um, handle your own regulatory environment and all your permissions, and just take their payloads to the moon and, serve, and give them data back to Earth. But $77 million doesn't sound like enough money to build something that is going to the moon. I should have asked for more. I should have asked for more. <laughs> I, I swear to God, I should have asked for more. But, uh, but, I'll but, tell but, you, though, it was, it, it's not that bad. We, we, we knew that the price of launches is coming down, right? And we took uh, some of the uh, entrepreneurial, um, agile, processes that we were cultivating with inside JSC Engineering. And we pulled a team out of JSC of engineers and scientists that came with me. They have worked with me for 15 years. And we formed a company that was all about, you know, lean, affordable development. And we knew what the, the key was, NASA and the NASA critical uh, flight safety kind of processes are there for a good reason. But there's also a layer of government bureaucracy that gets wrapped around it. And if we could strip away from a point of intelligence what makes sense, keep what makes sense, and strip away those things that are not, necessar not necessary for the safety of flight, maybe we could do it cheaper. So our goal, I think, as important as landing on the moon as the first commercial company, as a return for the United States, where only has been the purview of superpowers, our goal is to be an aerospace company that can be disruptive to the larger aerospace industry, which has a set of established processes and bureaucracy that uh, might be constraining to uh, fast-moving uh, uh, future programs. And so this is an experiment, and NASA knows it, but we're aiming to do things in a disruptive manner, in an agile way, we're making a lot of progress, and do it for a, a mission to the moon for less than $100 million. 
your, your 3D printing parts of the engine? There's an example, James, about how you do this. You know, we ought to write a book about it when we're done. But, you know, we take an engine, we print an igniter. Uh, I'm sorry, an igniter, an engine injector, and a nozzle about the size of a large Nike shoe. You put that all together, that's a thousand pound thrust engine for liquid oxygen, liquid methane. We can print those parts for that engine in a week. And the following week, we're test firing it on a mobile test stand out of Ellington Field in Houston. And you in were one week. Y'all were just testing um, the engine recently. Right, you saw in the video, we're testing a thousand pound engine which goes on the Nova Sea lander. We're testing 3,500 pound engine which is the um, engine which we're giving, uh, we're doing a technology development for NASA on the human lander. And that size engine is 3,500 pound and we're already testing that. We built that uh, two weeks ago and we're testing it now. Wow, wow. So these are the kind of techniques that allow you to, um, to move quickly, move safely, iterate in a, in a very fast way so that you can converge on a solution and then lock it in for flight. You've also got a, basically a space glider that's the size of a golf bag. Yeah. And what are you doing with it? Well, that was an early on idea. We, the company's had uh, 24 inventions in six years, and one of the first inventions we came up with uh, was the terrestrial return vehicle. And it's basically a mid-L over D lifting body that comes out of the uh, Japanese experiment airlock on the International Space Station and is removed with a robotic arm, hung over the side of the space station and released where that uh, vehicle then uh, wakes up on a timer. Its star trackers take a picture of the stars. It orients itself, uh, understands its attitude and a position, and then calculates a deorbit burn to fly into Vandenberg Air Force Base. And Carrying we can small experiments back to Earth from the ISS. Exactly. The, the idea was to bring small, uh, you could land in any given day from the International Space Station. You could bring blood, water, urine, small parts, samples back from Space Station that would inform, you know, the science that was going on in Space Station or the crew health or critical parts. And so that vehicle we started, we got the grant from, uh, from the uh, uh, NASA uh, CASIS, which is the Center for Advancement of Science in Space, and we began development of that. And you still may see that in the future. <laughs> you spoke of mentors throughout your career. How have you paid that forward in your career and at Intuitive Machines? Yeah, there's been so many uh, people who've positively influenced uh, my life and career, um, tough to give name to everyone, but I felt a responsibility. Um, it, you know, I was given a great education here at Embry-Riddle, been given great opportunities in NASA to grow my career. And uh, so I started um, a program when I became engineering director to have an executive intern program where I would rotate interns for the full uh, seven years of being an engineering director, I had interns every six months that would come and learn and walk with an engineering director and learn, you know, what I did and how I did it and how I thought and how I made decisions. And I learned a tremendous amount from them 
and how they thought and how they saw the world. And so it was a very healthy exchange. I took that same thought process towards mentorship, protégés and mentorship, and adopted that in Intuitive Machines. And so we've been a small business. We're just now at 110 people or so. When we were starting in the very early days, back in late 2013, we immediately brought interns and co-ops in, and we've educated over 70 interns and co-ops in the short time the company's been around. And have a few Embry-Riddle uh, employees, I understand. We have three, counting myself, which is not enough. <laughs> so I was handing out business cards all day yesterday to all your PhD students and master's students to say, Intuitive Machines is a good home for you. And uh, I think you'd be excited about uh, the kind of work that we're doing. And what are you doing as part of the, uh, the industry advisory group? And what are you learning from that experience? That's been a great opportunity. And uh, uh, Dr. Maj, I appreciate your uh, having me on that advisory board. And again, it's part of that giving back, that philanthropy that says, you know, Embry-Riddle College of Engineering gave me a fantastic engineer, uh, engineering education. And um, it was low cost <laughs> at the time, 1987 was, was much cheaper than today. Um, but got a great education. And so with that, took that education and parlayed it into a career in human spaceflight. And if there's anything that I can give back to teach to say, here's how I think about students' education. Here's how I think from my experience about um, equipment and facilities and labs and curriculum. Um, is there anything I can help with? Um, and Maj has been very good at accepting the industry input, seeking it out, understanding it, and applying it directly to, to the benefit of all of you, uh, especially in the College of Engineering. So I'm privileged to be able to serve on that, on that board. Your company is really on kind of the cutting edge of everything that's happening with this new space race. And I've heard it described as data is driving all of this growth. Where do you see the future, the business of space in the future? Um, not so sure about data driven, uh, but it is. It's an information-based economy these days. But, you know, I'll tell you something. I'm going to put a plug in for the administrator, Jim Bridenstine. I had the privilege of sitting with last week at the uh, International Astronomical Congress, Astronautical Con Congress in Washington, D.C. He had a round table. And he explained to us as industry leaders the Artemis program. And the Artemis program is to put humans back on the moon in, by 2024. You know, from my experience within NASA, uh, I first heard that and it was laughable. I didn't believe it. Um, I've seen what he's been able to do and the loose coalition he's been able to establish, the bipartisan support he's been able to put together. And what's happened is he has been able to unite the aerospace contractor workforce. He's been able to set a vision for how we might get back to the moon by 2024 and have a sustainable presence in the vicinity of the moon that, that, that doesn't end up like a lot of the NASA programs where you have a cancellation with an administration change that results in an eight or 10 year delay to another future human spaceflight program. So what they've been able to do is unite the agency 
unite the contractor community, build bipartisan support for a program that goes back to the moon that begins with CLIPS, the Commercial Lunar Payload Service Contract, with Intuitive Machines at the point of the spear being the first company back, raising the U.S. economy for uh, in its ability to uh, generally access the moon, communicate around the moon, return from the moon, fly humans to the moon. And then what he's done is he's placed things like the orbiting gateway, recall the discussion about the waypoint, that is the gateway. They've competed the power propulsion element, which is a uh, electric propulsion uh, element that's uh, full of solar arrays that creates power for a, a spacecraft station beyond the moon. They've sole sourced to Northrop Grumman the habitation module, which is really a, a module where a crew can live and work. They've got production contracts out for the Orion spacecraft to build the next six uh, to bring crew up to the vicinity of the moon. And they've led a contract to Boeing to build 10 core stages to launch the crew to, 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 uh, uh, to, to the gateway. So what they've done is they've created a United States-led coalition to put an open platform in the vicinity of the moon that allows uh, small, medium, large businesses to participate. It allows the, the, the United States government to lead that. And it has room for all the internationals to play, all the international partners. Whether you want to come uh, from above the gravity well down to the surface of the moon with a Japanese lander, or you want to put the European lander down, or you want to put a rover on the surface, there's room for everybody. And with that international partnership and with that um, open, open platform kind of construct, he's got worldwide support stitched together, which now I can see that there, it's a very bright, innovative plan. And I'm happy to be at the forefront of it. What does that mean to a freshman aerospace <laughs> engineering student at Embry-Riddle? So what uh, I'll, I'll take is um, a line from Jim Bridestein that said, this is the Artemis generation. You know, we are um, somewhat cynical after a career in aerospace and about program cancellations, about cost overruns, about, you know, bureaucracy, and, and you see it in the news all the time about that. But when I walk around here and I talk to the students in the College of Engineering and I talk to students on other campuses, I just see bright-eyed enthusiasm for space and what we're doing. And uh, it's theirs to own. I mean, there's job opportunities. There are so many, there's a need for so many engineers right now to build out this program uh, to make this a reality. And so I think it's up to uh, the students to own it, to study hard, to reach in and dig deep, get good grades, graduate, and take these jobs uh, that are going to lead us to the next phase in exploration around the moon. About time for questions, okay. I think. Uh, Alan, do you have any questions from the audience watching online? Yep. I can't see you. It's dark in here. Yes? Okay. Um, uh, let's start with students in the audience. If you have a question, uh, come down to the microphone and uh, ask Steve. It's the Ask Steve show now. Yeah. 
Come on, you're an engineering student, you can figure that out. <laughs> Hello, okay. Hi, Mr. Altimus. Uh, my name is Carlos Cielo. I am from the Experimental Rocket Propulsion Lab here at Embry-Riddle, and I had a question concerning the Nova C lander. I saw that a lot of your technology is based on the Morpheus project from NASA, actually, and you're using a liquid oxygen and the liquid methane engine. I was wondering what type of stage combustion cycle do you actually use inside of your inside of the engine in order to get the correct pressure out, like, or is it helium pressurized just like the Morpheus lander was? Yeah, very. Ex explain a little bit about what the Morpheus. Uh, project was, please. Okay. Uh, if you can bear with me on a long-winded answer about that, to answer <laughs> James first, <laughs> no, I'll, okay, I'll tell yeah. that story and then answer your question real <laughs> yeah. quick. Um, frustration I talked about within the NASA uh, bureaucracy at the time when we were leading three human spaceflight architectures and none of them were getting traction at the time with the administration or being sold. I came home very frustrated um, and talking at dinner with my son, Joe, who's uh, 14 years old at the time. He's now, a, well, uh, he's 25 now, but this was a number of years ago. He's like, Dad, I never hear you talk bad about NASA. What's the matter? You seem depressed about things. And I said, well, I'm just frustrated, son, that we're not doing anything bold. I feel like I'm at the head of a, the NFL of engineering. You know, Johnson Space Center Engineering Design Development House is the NFL, right? This is the best engineering organization I know of in the world. And we're essentially a Ferrari at idle, not allowed to step on the gas and invent new things. He says, boy, I'd like to unleash the power of JSC engineering and go accomplish something spectacular. So he and I sat there, and I had a glass of wine, and he talked to me for a while, and we came up with a plan to put a walking humanoid robot on the moon in 1,000 days. He's, he went upstairs, and that weekend he made a video and on Monday, I went in and talked to the 10 division chiefs of the organization and said, would you join me in unleashing the power of the organization and can we go put a walking robot on the moon in a thousand days? This is from within NASA. This is from within a bureaucracy that this entrepreneurial idea is coming out. And to a person, they said, absolutely. And we went about stitching together basically nickels to put together this program and we built a humanoid walking robot of which it went to space station and walked on there just like Isaac Asimov said in, in his science fiction books. And we built Morpheus, which was the Project M lander. And it was a liquid oxygen, liquid methane engine that could autonomously land and avoid hazards on the surface of the moon. And that is the basis of intuitive machines and that's the basis of our Nova Sea lander, right, to answer your question. But in spe specifics, for the LOX methane lander uh, and propulsion system, we use a, we're still trading helium and nitrogen, but it's a high-pressure gas pressurized system. Um, and we have a film-cooled liquid oxygen, liquid methane engine. So we have a combustion chamber that is film-cooled to keep um, from burning through the nozzle and then we'll have a carbon-carbon um, nozzle extension on it. So it's a high-pressure blowdown system. We do have a regeneratively cooled version of it uh, that we're advancing that technology because we think as the lander is bigger and bigger and bigger, uh, we're gonna need higher and higher ISP on that uh, engine, but we're doing pretty good. We right now are outperforming any of the bi-propellant space storables that are out there. 
which is what all the other landers in the competition um, are using. So we can get much higher specific impulse with LOX methane. Yeah, you, you guys have a really high ISP from what I've been looking at, and that's also pretty cool, pretty cool development from you guys' this part. It's pretty amazing to see. Well, well I'm glad you're looking at it from uh, school here. That's, that's really good. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Carlos. Thank you. Go ahead. Hi, I'm Michael Tommaso. I'm a freshman studying aerospace engineering, and I've done a little bit of looking into your uh, Nova Sea lander, and I noticed that you guys use uh, what appears to be like a LIDAR, to uh, like uh, map out the uh, moon as you're uh, making descent for landing. Um, how does LIDAR necessarily uh, work as you're coming down uh, through your descent and the regolith is picked up by the, uh, like the uh, uh, descent stage? How is the LIDAR able to uh, see through that like uh, regolith or have you guys like, uh, is that a design challenge for you guys? Yeah, absolutely a design challenge, right? If you have a big cloud of dust that's obscuring the uh, uh, laser altimeter and what your altitude is. Uh, we have multiple levels of uh, sensors that uh, we actually use. So we'll come in initially with, a, with a, uh, using optics to look at the surface of the moon, look at the surface terrain, and compare that to the surface terrain maps that we download from the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, which is going overhead. And we compare those maps and say, we're navigating now, comparing crater size and depth with what the orbiter is doing. And we can approximate where we are on the surface. We have a laser altimeter that actually uh, measures the altitude of where we're flying, right? We have inertial measurement units that actually tell us where we're at attitude-wise and speed and everything. So we can constantly do calculations. If we get obscured, that's okay, by the dust coming up because you're close to the surface. And so you rely less on the laser altimeter as you're coming down through the dust cloud and you just set a throttling profile for lowering your speed to about one meter per second as you touch down. And as you do that, uh, we have an automatic uh, engine cutoff sensor that uh, gives us feedback when we get the accelerometer hit from touching the surface. So I don't necessarily need to read 000 on the laser altimeter. So we've, we've worked around it, use it at the altitude where it's right. Don't use it where it's obscured uh, by the dust. Got it. Thank you. Okay, sure. And, and for those of you who don't know, um, LIDAR stands for light detection, and radi um, light detection and ranging. It's like radar, except it uses lasers. And you get millions of returns per second. Um, on using LIDAR. So, and we use LIDAR in lots and lots of projects. Um, lots of autonomous systems are using LIDAR systems here at Embry. -River. And they're lining up here, that's good. Oh, okay, <laughs> please, go ahead. Hi, uh, my name's Kate, I'm a junior here. So you mentioned that you were one of nine companies that was allowed to even bid on the projects to get back to the moon. So what, drew you to that specific process and what was the pro what was it like going from those nine companies to the three country the three companies that actually were actually got the bid and could actually build the lander um, thank you for asking that that's great and um, someone we actually um, were working to invent a number of different things and in, in the business we're having a little bit of a hard time gaining traction right because initially uh, we said we wanted to get away from NASA and we wanted to do our own thing and solve intractable problems. Where a couple people came in to the company 
in about April, May timeframe of 2018 and said, hey, we're, um, this procurement is coming out from NASA. There's a request for information on the street to put a lander on the moon. And we're going around, uh, everybody's telling us, where do I find a lander company? And somebody said, well, you go to Houston and you talk to Intuitive Machines. They're the best lander company there is. And we weren't <laughs> even calling ourselves that. And they walked in the door and they told us about the procurement and we said, talked to my partner, Dr. Tim Crane, and said, this is us. We've got to do this. And so we set about a process of actually figuring out what the Nova C would be, what is it, naming it, right? Naming is a whole other thing, how we did it. But um, went through the whole process, started figuring out how to build engines, you know, in, on the cheap with no money, tried to put the proposal together, gathered it all together, and then uh, we submitted it. 30 days later, we win it. So I get a call. This is the part that you're asking. I get a call, how I felt, from NASA. It says, uh, can you get on the phone with us tomorrow at 10.30. Yeah, okay, that's good. That's usually a good sign you're getting notified by NASA. So the program manager, the contracting officer, the deputy contracting officer, the lawyer, all these people are on the phone. They call me in, I dial the phone. This is Intuitive Machine, Steve Altimus, president, CEO. They're like, are you sitting down? I said, yes. <laughs> well, you're an awardee. And they said, you can put the phone on mute and jump up and down now. And that's exactly what we did. <laughs> we made the moon, right? So I was very ecstatic. They said, you're, I said, how many people won? You know? So I thought we were one. We turned out to be nine. So it was a little let down there, but that's okay. Then we come around a few months later to the mission itself. This is the first mission back to the moon. And we submitted our proposal. I got another call that says, can you meet at 1030 in the morning? Sure can pick up the phone, and they said, you got it. You got the first mission to the moon. And I'll tell you, there's no better feeling in the world. So we had about a week of just excitement and uh, exuberance. And then, oh my God, we've got to do this. And so it's been sleepless nights, long hours ever since. But it was a fantastic feeling. Thank you. You're welcome. Please. Hi, I'm Casey. Um, you mentioned the... Um, Terrestrial return vehicle. Could you talk more about the universal return vehicle? Uh, it's one and the same. Um, the universal return vehicle and the terrestrial return vehicle. But terrestrial return vehicle was designed specifically for the International Space Station to bring samples back out of the Japanese airlock. Right? It was dimensionally sized that way. It had to have a propulsion system that was essentially inert gas that wouldn't hurt the crew because it was on the inside. And so we had a special propulsion system inside there. But the universal reentry vehicle is really designed as a lifting body that can return from low Earth orbit, from geosynchronous orbit, from orbit around the moon, using different heat shields and different uh, propulsion. The key thing is that the entry guidance is all finished and that we have a very um, advanced entry guidance algorithms and software that are written. So URV is supposed to be a scalable version that's marketed to other customers outside of NASA. And would the URV be able to say like deorbit old satellites or would it just be a functioning like as sending stuff from maybe like another station back to Earth? Well, it actually could be used um, to deorbit other satellites, but I think it's an expensive uh, solution, so I wouldn't, wasn't planning on using it that way. We have another solution for that. Um, 
But really, when I think about it, it was supposed to be a precision landing uh, return capsule from the moon is where we're really going from. Gotcha. Thank you. Okay. Hi, Mr. Ultimus. My name's uh, Brandon McGann, and I'm a junior here. And I just want to say it's been a pleasure listening to you tonight. Uh, if you don't mind, I'd like to backtrack to when you were speaking on additive manufacturing and how you're using that in the engine development. Uh, you did mention how the rapid increase in how quickly you can go from a prototype to the testing facility uh, has been so useful to you. Could you maybe take a moment and speak on how you think uh, additive manufacturing plays a role in using more complex geometries? Uh, obviously, you're getting a lot less scrap. And even maybe outside the engine development, where you think that technology is going to help you in the future? Yeah, it's uh, very, very good. I think the, you know, the reason we got into additive manufacturing was not about 3D printing. It was about generative design. And it was yeah. about using the printer, uh, the 3D machine, and um, developing a new design process around that. Because I don't think yet we've tapped into the full potential of additive manufacturing until you go upstream from that and change the design mm -hmm. paradigm. You know, all of us learned how to design um, things based on the machines of our fathers and grandfathers and great-grandfathers, right? The, the CNC Bridgeport milling machine, yep. you know, X, Y, Z axis, and you cut away things. And that's what's in our mind when we sit down to design a part. Well, what if you can design a part that comes out of your imagination? Well, you never imagine the part. You imagine the, you conceive the environments, the constraints, and you know, whether it's the aero loads, the thermal loads, the, the attach points, and then you give it to a series of algorithms that do some optimization and estimation where it comes out and you run through a series of Monte Carlo sims where it comes out of there right to the machine, mm -hmm. and you've done millions of iterations of which maybe there's three parts that work with all those constraints, and you print those. And so the printer prints a part that you've never imagined. Right? That's why we got into it, and that's where I think the future's going. Um, and it's about learning everything you can about ANSYS, finite element modeling, all your thermal modeling, all your CFD modeling, um, and then learning about um, optimization estimation techniques that are used in guidance navigation control, coupling that with Monte Carlo simulations that refine and refine and refine the answer. And you put that together, and you get that's the next future yeah. of where we're going. Uh, was that? Yeah, definitely. Okay. Appreciate okay. it. Sure. Yeah, a lot of stuff I didn't quite understand there. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So, hi, my name is Jacob Wallace. I'm a freshman aerospace engineering student. So, in this last year, we've learned from situations like with the Barasheet lander and with the Sandrion mission that the moon is very hard to land on. Yes. Uh, have, has the Nova Sea design uh, been impacted by those incidents, uh, and how have you guys learned from uh, those two lander failures? Yeah, that's an excellent question. Uh, we've actually have uh, learned quite a bit. And I'll tell you something, we'll never be able to go to the moon if it wasn't standing on the shoulders of all of the investments in time and energy and talent that have been shown through from Apollo all the way up to these latest landers. And so, you know, a little humility here where we're just the next in, in the queue to try. Um, with respect to the... Uh, uh, Berenchit lander, uh, the Israeli uh, variant from Space IL. Um, we were in the proposal process um, at the time, 
bidding, we added another string of redundancy in our avionics. Um, they had a failure in their flight computer, uh, their IMU right, right in a critical phase. And so what we said is we'll pay the mass penalty and we'll put another uh, hot spare kind of level of redundancy there in case we get a, a, a photon hit or, a, or a, I'm sorry, a proton hit, a, a single event upset kind of thing where we can run through that. That's one. The other one, we were watching the uh, ISRO, the Indian lander, land, and I had a design review going at the time. There's about 30 people in the room, and they're going from, you know, there's deorbit, de descent, landing. And they had a different phase where they go into this coast phase. And in there, they turn their engine off. And the whole room went, <gasps> don't turn your engine off during descent landing. That's a lesson that everybody would say. It's done because of the limitations in throttling and the reasons that they're doing what they're doing. We wouldn't do it that way. We stay under thrust. We throttle the engine. You keep the power on. You don't cycle your engine. You don't want to... You know, I don't know exactly what happened to them. You know, we have our theories about shutting the engine off, losing that acceleration, and getting a big slosh of propellant that actually changes the CG and flips it over, and your antenna loses calm. You relight the engine, and it goes right into the ground. Who knows what happened? But, you know, so we learned uh, and paid attention to that, and we're paying particular attention to every phase of flight, what's turned on, what's turned off, what we can command, what we can't, what's the timeline, what's the profile. And we're playing scenario-based thinking to say, what can fail? And we're anticipating, you know, what can fail? What can we upload? How can we change the commands? All that, right now, we're doing that thinking today. Thank you very much. You're welcome. All right, time for two quick questions. <laughs> oh, man, I'll try and make it quick. My name is Alexander Lanny, and I'm with the Experimental Rocket Propulsion Lab. Um, you had touched on it, actually, in the prior question, and I was a little bit upset. Uh, you mentioned analytics and AI, and, or not AI, but algorithms, and how that's playing a new kind of key role in aerospace industry. Could you go into that a little bit further? How has that affected your company in particular? Yeah, so I think um, what I would say is uh, came from this idea of putting a walking robot on the moon in 1,000 days, Project M. And when we were forming Intuitive Machines, our first thoughts was, you know, we had probably the best um, robotics division in, in the agency. You know, Boston Dynamics is, 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 long, is great. They're even better now. Mm -hmm. We said, well, maybe we should form a robotics company. And then I had the best division um, in aeroscience and some flight mechanics in uh, engineering, too. And I said, well, maybe we need to do a software division. So when I looked at it, robotics, mechatronics packaging, you know, microcontrollers and and uh, um, me mechano um, um, mechanism design and miniaturization is about 30 years ahead of the software, mm -hmm. right? So you see these beautiful robots that can barely walk across the room, that can't really do much, except for Boston Dynamics. Um, <laughs> and you said, what kind of company would you form given that situation? And we chose to form the aerosciences and flight mechanics based on guidance, navigation, and control. And at the heart of guidance, navigation, control are the, is the algorithmic work. Mm -hmm. The optimization, the estimation, the, those techniques that advance calculus, the mathematics that actually drive the software, the smarter and smarter software. And so we build the Nova Sea lander, we build the uh, Tiburon Jr. long-range drone with a core of software 
that's driven by very complex mathematics and algorithms. So that's, that's to me, what the future was about. Wonderful answer. Thank you. Got a minute. Um, I'll try to make it quick then. Hello, my name is Nicholas Albrecht, and I am with the Future Space Explorers and Developer Society. And I'd just like to quickly come back on you mentioning that when you left JSC to form your own company, that one part of it was to address issues on Earth and their solutions. Now, the current time is a time for awareness, as some people might say. And a lot of people around the internet and around the world have raised the question of, well, what good is space travel and exploration for the betterment of human society? Now, everyone here attends Embry-Riddle or has something to do with space and or engineering in some capacity, so I think we all have an answer to this, but I would love it if you could take a quick few seconds and give your personal response. What would be your answer to that question? What is it useful for? Well, um, a lot of times at NASA, uh, I've been asked that question about uh, human spaceflight and why human spaceflight and why are we taking, you know, why are we spending so much money on human spaceflight when there's social programs and there's infrastructure problems on Earth? And, you know, I think the uh, answer is got to be both, right? You have to have, in, as human beings, we have an inherent drive to look upward and outward in an expanding sense. And so if we at NASA or we at Intuitive Machines don't tackle the challenge of moving humans off this planet further and further out into the solar system, somebody else will because it's in the human DNA to explore, right? And so whether we talk about politics or social programs or dollars, we're explorers at heart as human beings and we're curious. And that curiosity, I think, means something. It means something in the United States. It means something about the aspirations of science and what it does to humanity and lifting them up and trying to create a better world. So regardless of the technology breakthroughs, the technology breakthroughs in LIDAR, the technology breakthroughs in, in uh, pharmaceuticals based on the International Space Station or in propulsion and microcomputing and batteries and just go on and on and on about all the things that came out of the space program. Forget the spin-offs. Just think as a human race. What kind of race would we have if we didn't have aspirational goals? And I think to me that's the thing that drives us and uh, the thing we ought, to, we ought to latch on to. Is there room for study about climate change? Absolutely. And space helps us understand the Earth. I think it's a mistake not to look back at the Earth and say the Earth is uh, a fragile thing that we ought to take care of. And you get that perspective from the Earth rise, from Moon, from the Apollo days, right? And we get to see what a fragile body we have. So it's a good question, and it's, it's debated everywhere, um, certainly in all the budgetary discussions about how we should spend our money. Thank you very much, and also thank you very much for being here. Thank you. Thank you, Steve. Sure. This was a lot of fun. We need to have you back in a year to see how you're doing with the Nova C. I guarantee we'll be doing great. In two years, I'll be sitting on my, on my hands, hoping we land safely. Thank, thank you, you very much. Everybody, thank you. Thank you. Hi, this is Alan again. Thanks for listening to this special episode of Talent Talks. 
You can send us your feedback anytime via email to alumni at erau.edu. We'll be back next month in our usual format. The Talent Talks podcast is a production of WIKD Radio and the Embry-Riddle Office of Alumni Engagement. We're coming at you from the Maury Hosseini Student Union at Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University in sunny Daytona Beach, Florida. Thanks for downloading us. We'll see you next time.